This is the second part of our 25th anniversary consideration of Bank of England independence. Now, if you haven't listened to the last week's episode, which places the decision in its historical context and offers some crucial background, we'd strongly recommend listening to that first. But if you're only interested in the future of central bank independence, this is a perfectly good place to start. Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. So we're back now with Paul Tucker, former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. Let's move on to the crisis. Which crisis? The The 2008 2008? crisis. And the realisation that the regime that had been established by Gordon Brown, while the Monetary Policy Committee had functioned well, had a problem, which was the you had this financial stability problem, which you were struggling to deal with as a, a group. Everyone always remembers Mervyn. I mean, there are a lot of criticism levelled at Mervyn for being slow to respond to the crisis and reading his budget and basically saying, well, we aren't going to bail out failing institutions. How much of a learning curve was that? And and how much did you have to recover lost expertise, as it were? And how easy was it to do that? So I, I think the bank was slow to respond in 2007. We started to get our act together by the end of 2007 in some joined up action in December. And then in the spring, we did more. And then Mervyn commissioned, partly encouraged by John McFall's Treasury Select Committee, Mervyn commissioned a review of all of our liquidity facilities, which which we were ready to announce just as Lehman failed. In fact, Mervyn and I were in his room on the Saturday morning, finally signing off on all of the new facilities that a team under me, a cross-bank team under me, had designed, which, as an aside, these were the biggest changes in the Bank of England's lender of last resort facilities for a century. I am absolutely serious. How long did how long and, did it and, take you to draw them up? And what did you up? do then? Double them. <laughs> <laughs> and we are there when we get the telephone call about about Lehman. So we didn't actually end up launching those new facilities for another few weeks. After that, I think something that during the crisis, where Mervyn should take credit, not only him, I think Stefan Ingvist, governor of the Swedish Central Bank, and, and a few others. So this is going to be about the solvency of banks. It's not just going to be about liquidity. And the Federal Reserve and others were very, very much focused on this being a liquidity problem that got out of control. I think that Mervyn and Stefan were absolutely right that it wasn't just a liquidity crisis that rendered the banks insolvent. Part of the problem was the banks were fundamentally weak because the Basel II system and various national supervisors had allowed the banks to carry almost no common equity base at all. Uh, I'm speaking at the moment from, well, I'm in Harvard at the moment, so I'm speaking from the States. Still, the perception here is that there were monetary policy mistakes that led to the financial crisis. And I certainly think that monetary policy in the United States kind of didn't make things easier in the run-up to the crisis. But the fundamental reason that the system cracked was that the system was weak. And that became part of this international effort to kind of reconfigure financial regulation internationally. Whose fault was it that the system was too weak, do you think? Do you think it's possible to attribute sort of blame to what how it came about? Or do you think it was just a sort of institutional global failure? 
there was a global failure around Basel II and some technical issues around what counted as capital. It's basically things that weren't capital counted as capital in ways that my generation of policymakers, including Mark Harney, when he was government bank of Canada, he and I were on the same group in Basel that Mario Draghi chaired. And it was just obvious to us that some technical but massive changes had to be made around the definition of capital. That was driven top down, not by the technocrats. But in the UK, I think the whole culture of light touch supervision was a disaster. I think there may be formal proposals to give the Bank of England on its regulatory supervisory side a competitiveness. And, you know, pray God no, because this is so, so bad for the people of the country. Because what happens is the dynamic where you've got a choice between toughening up a bit and people say, well, actually, this will damage competitiveness. And so the, the lobbies, they have a, a formal lever that they can use. So they're, they're, they're ignoring their competitiveness objective. We're falling behind banks from such and such and such. What I learned from a certain tradition in the Bank of England was if you want the city to thrive, three things matter. Soundness, honesty, and openness. And don't go chasing after competitiveness. One of the consequences of the crisis was the recession of 2009 and the decision to embark on the policy of quantitative easing, effectively the government issuing debt, which is then bought up in various ways by the Bank of England and added to its balance sheet. I've always regarded this as a a surrender of independence because my memory was that Mervyn King, when he was asked to do this by Alistair Darling, said, well, I'll do it, but only if you give me effectively an instruction and an indemnity against any credit losses. And it's on the record that it came from the Treasury. And Darling said, fair enough, and started writing letters. And it seemed to me that that simply went back to a world in which the government was effectively dictating to the Bank of England. But maybe I'm wrong. What was your, what's your sense? I think that you are 90 plus percent wrong. Okay. But I do think that whole thing may have affected Treasury thinking in a way that changed the trajectory a bit. But banking system globally has imploded. Many banks have been rescued. Remember, by the way, that, and this is often forgotten, the crisis wasn't really over. The crisis didn't end until the US stress test passed off successfully in March or April of 2009. I'm quite critical of various things of the Fed during 2008, but I thought the stress testing thing was hugely well executed and hugely effective, luckily, and created a new world in a way, although one that may be going slightly wrong. The government wanted the Bank of England to start buying corporate bonds. That's where they were coming from. Our response was, we've got to distinguish between providing stimulus to the economy and fixing various problems in the corporate credit uh, markets. And we do need to provide more stimulus because we are going to hit what is now commonly known as the zero lower bound. So this is just for our listeners, the zero lower bound is basically when interest rates hit naught and you can't reduce yeah. them further. Yes, well, it would kind of be an adventure to... to, to uh, <laughs> you could in theory. Well, yeah, some people, some countries have embarked on it, yes. of course. But, but not much, you know, 50 basis points or something, which is a no one's gone to minus three or minus four. So we were absolutely up for doing what came to be called quantitative easing. And actually, when Gordon Brown's team and Gordon Brown himself, I think, wanted us to, to buy corporate bonds, we said, no, no, what we should do is... There's a, there's a thing called the asset purchase facility. And I think it's fair to say 
that government's kind of thought is that we would use this to buy loads and loads of government bonds. And we said, no, actually what we're going to do is we're going to buy loads and loads of gilts to pull long-term yields down and to stimulate the economy. And we're going to act as a market maker of last resort in the corporate bond markets in order to unblock the corporate bond markets. A team led by Paul Fisher, I think, under me, developed a, an auction system for essentially being a backstop market maker in sterling corporate bonds that brought the dealers, the real dealers, back into the market because they knew they'd got a backstop, revived the, the sterling corporate bond market. There was record issuance in 2009, both in values and in the number of issuers. And we didn't buy, we didn't buy very much at all. Just being there as a backstop buyer was enough to revive the market. It's a rather small thing in terms of the numbers. I think it was rather a big thing in terms of helping the UK get through the early phases of the crisis. But we did say, well, if we're going to, as we're going to buy tons of gilts, and I can remember exactly where I was. There was a weekend when Mervyn was negotiating this with the Treasury and, and Number 10. And I'm sure he called others, but he called me at least three times over that weekend. The bank was very joined up during this period. And we asked for two things. We, first of all, asked for an undertaking that the DMO would not take advantage of what we were doing and thereby negate it, which an exchange of letters publicly between Alistair Darling and Mervyn made that commitment. The other thing we said was, well, in buying lots of gilts, if and when it works, we are going to take a big loss. You will have to recapitalize us at, that, at this point. And rather than all of that being discovered exposed to some unhappy accident, we need to make all of that clear up front. Where I think you're onto something, so remember, being onto something means kind of less than 5% of the truth. But nevertheless, <laughs> it gave 10% previously. Yeah, I'm afraid now it... cut it to five. <laughs> It'll be down to two it's next. grateful for more uh, than zero. That's what they say. The deal with the Treasury was that when we wanted to embark on a QE program, they could decide a cap. Now, in terms of monetary policy, this made no difference in that whenever we wanted to do something, they had almost no realistic option but to agree or alternatively announce that they were switching off monetary independence, which they're perfectly entitled to do under the law. And so we felt comfortable with that, which is that they've got this nuclear weapon. That's absolutely fine. They've, they've got a nuclear weapon in the law anyway, and that they can suspend monetary independence as long as they tell Parliament that they're doing so. And so we said, well, that's OK. They can have that approve the cap. And it just is one way to their nuclear weapon. I think it may have fostered a thought in, among Treasury ministers, not only then, but later, that the Bank of England doesn't really have a balance sheet that they do and the balance sheet belongs to them. And if there's anything to that, then that needs to be corrected. The whole point of independence is to give control of the balance sheet to the monetary authority under terms set by parliament, but which can be withdrawn. Independence, I think, really does mean independence from the executive. But what shouldn't happen is independence kind of getting chipped away at behind the scenes. And that's not because it's inconvenient to the central bankers. Who cares about that? That's because if independence is being suspended, the people should be told. Yeah. Well, I, I take your point. But one of the consequences of QE, which people like me have routinely described as something like a Ponzi scheme, 
is that the perception is that the bank is, if not, has not lost its independence, is certainly a good deal less independent than it used to be in terms of how it is viewed. And I think this is something which, however many letters there may be and how much technical backup there may be, is a perception which is both dangerous and increasingly widespread. So let's say you're right. The question is, is when that's set in... Hey, decent oh, Two and a half percent. <laughs> <laughs> Less than me. Well, don't, don't, don't overdo it. The question is when that perception <laughs> set in. I, I left the Bank of England in late 2013. We did some more QE during the euro area crisis, not much compared with 2009-10. And I, I would say there was no perception during that period that we were less independent. In fact, if anything, the perception during that period was that the bank might be overreaching, in particular, Mervyn's speech on fiscal policy at the Mansion House, which greatly irritated what became the outgoing government. Whatever one thinks of the speech, this wasn't this wasn't the speech of a governor of a central bank that thought of itself as under the thumb of the Treasury in some way. But I think in, in the interventions in the guild market in March and April 2020, I think those would have been much better conceived of and presented as market maker of last resort and providing some immediate help to the government in an absolute disaster to kind of stabilize the guild market. And as the guild market stabilized, I basically think those purchases should have been reversed. Because as the economy was shutting down, you didn't really need to stimulate aggregate demand more by purchasing more and more government bonds, which happened in the United States, by the way, as well as the UK. So I do, I do think the measures taken in March, April, and during the rest of 2020 weren't the best measures, which isn't to say the initial purchases were mistaken, I don't think they were, but I don't think they were monetary policy. I think they were market stabilization and should have been reversed. And I think that they weren't reversed, and therefore, particularly in the States, but in degree in the UK, that the central bank carried on purchasing government bonds to a much greater extent in Washington than in London. I think that did foster the kind of perception that you report. And I think that's a bad thing. Do you think that we are going to be able to sustain bank independence at a time when inflation is 7% rather than 2% and shows very little sign of coming down and is getting much more entrenched into the economies, not just in the UK, but of the West. And the sort of medicine that a banker would impose would be politically extremely painful. They have to do what their mandate requires them to do. If the country doesn't like that, then they need to repeal the law. Mm. What their responsibility is to fulfil their mandate under the law, not to think about when Paul Volcker broke the back of inflation in the United States, he was at one point the most unpopular person in America. But, you know, of the great central bankers, he now rides high. Do you think we have central bankers in the UK and the US who are capable of taking that sort of decision, which is clearly looking at history, what needs to be done? I think the regimes are much better designed in Paul's day. I think what individuals can do, any individuals, not just the current office holders, no, no one knows quite how well they will perform until they're facing those momentous decisions. What is different from 40 years ago everywhere 
is the regime makes it clear they are to maintain price stability. But do you consider that the current lot are capable of making this tough decision? Because from where from where I sit, it looks as though they're not. They are still well behind the curve in terms of interest rates, standing at a level which in my lifetime would have been considered essentially zero, and talking about the possibility of raising them a bit doesn't seem to me to indicate any sort of serious intent to try and deal with the inflation surge or the inflation that we've got at the moment. There is one concern I have, which is generic. It's not ad feminem or ad hominem, which is that how does this monetary independence thing work, really? Why does it work? The reason you take monetary policy away from politicians is that however much they kind of believe that low inflation is a good thing, they've got elections to win. They'd be very peculiar politicians if they didn't prioritize that first. We, we never felt at all critical of, of the individual's concern when they made monetary mistakes. Why should unelected people like me in the past and Mervyn and Eddie, people we talked about, current people, why should they be any better? And I think the key thing is you have to harness their incentives. And what ultimately it's about is the government, parliament, as I prefer to think of it, Congress sets a regime. And it does so in a way that's kind of pretty transparent. Inflation targeting is something that regular people can understand in a way that the old monetary targeting was incomprehensible. And what you get out of it is that if you deliver the mission, it gives you quite a lot of prestige amongst your professional group, but it gives you some public esteem too. But if you have central banks that are responsible for other things, for inequality, for climate change, for things that may matter more than price stability in some, then I would worry that even if they mess up on monetary policy, actually their personal standing will not fall because, uh, you know, at least they've, they've been... <laughs> they've had a crack. <laughs> ...on social justice and existential threats. And look, I, look I, I became a banker. I became a public servant and a central banker, thank God, because I believe that stability was a precondition for governments being able to achieve those more important goals. <laughs> This setup works only if the people that lead central banks are in some senses monomaniacs in their own interests. They mustn't be inflation <laughs> nutters, but they must think that my, my reputation and standing, professionally and in public, depends upon two things, price stability and a stable banking system. And that's it. Right. That's very clear. Before we end, I want to just move away from this fascinating discussion I wanted to get a list of your top three central bankers. Who would be you in your top three and why? <laughs> oh, that's a rotten question. I know. But... When, when you talked about 2007, 2008 and the mistakes and strengths, you talked about Badgett, who wrote his book after the 1866 crisis. The debate that took place then between Badgett and Governor Hankey is still not resolved. I think both men come out of that really well my generation and generations before, and perhaps even the current generation, tend to take Badgett seriously, but I think they should take Hanky seriously as well. And the debate was the question about lending to solvent institutions? Yes, Badgett came across, I think despite his best intentions, to basically lend to anybody. Oh. And Hanky says, that way lies ruin. So what's the answer to that? I think there is an answer, but I don't think it's been institutionalised. Okay. And I don't, I don't think many central bank governors have been as brave as Hankey. So I am not a moral hazard kind of extremist, but I do think 
that it's a great error not to take moral hazard okay. seriously. My second one I would mention, yep. governor in the 50s, perhaps into the early 60s, cobbled. Oh, right. And this is a great opportunity. Of course, during the Second World War, everything we've been talking about was on hold. The Bank of England's job was to finance the government and its war effort, quite rightly too. And that lingered for a long time afterwards. By the mid-1950s, Cobbold was arguing, shouldn't we get back to setting interest rates on the basis of price stability and the interests of the economy rather than other things? That moment was lost until 1997. And then finally, it's actually a pair. I think the UK was blessed beyond exaggeration in having Eddie George and Mervyn King in tandem. It was extraordinary to watch, extraordinary. And that independence succeeded, you know, in different hands. It could have gone wrong quite quickly. That they laid foundations in the way that they did, allowing the externals, letting the staff breathe, avoiding groupthink by giving an example of disagreeing between the two of them. And the way they improved the bank's public standing, both great communicators in very different ways, and improved the internal quality of the bank. This was, I feel very fortunate, but actually just have seen it. So they were, if I, if I merge them. <laughs> Not merging King. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week.